Better Buildings for Humans is sponsored by Advanced Glazings, makers of the Solera line of products. Solera is the leading glass glazing made specifically for architectural daylighting and with extreme thermal insulation performance. Learn more at advancedglazings.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the latest episode of Better Building for Humans. This week's guest is Blaine Brownell from the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. Blaine, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor. Let's dive right in. Um, you are a respected leader in the field of sustainable architecture, a thought leader. Um, but let's make sure that everybody knows who you are. As an introduction, can you tell us about yourself, a little bit about your career, and some of the important research that you're working on and have worked on? Absolutely, Joe. Uh, so I'm an architect and a professor, and uh, most recently an administrator in higher ed. And my focus in my research and practice has been on emerging materials and sustainable building technologies. I also have uh, kind of uh, other additional focus on East Asia. I had the great pleasure of living in Japan for a few times in my life and love that part of the world as well and, and the things that they do with materials and sustainability. So, uh, but currently at UNC Charlotte, I'm the director of our uh, David Raven School of Architecture here and have been in this post for three years. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, it is a joy to have you here. Let's start with some fun, maybe a little predicting. We're going to talk about the future a little bit. Um, you have been right on a few things before. The one that really jumps out to me was Aerogel. I saw a, a, a recording on YouTube of you giving a, a speech where you talked about the future of Aerogel, which is a very big part of almost all of advanced glazing's uh, um uh, glazing materials that go out the door now have aerogel with them. So you absolutely nailed that. So, uh, you know, you're working in the realm of the possible, what might be, um, you know, some of them are going to become commercially viable. Um, all of them are going to move us forward. It's certainly at least in, 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 um, in, in terms of, of, of inspiring the next generation of, of, of uh, innovation. Give me two or three that you think are going to end up being commercially viable and that are going to help us make even better buildings. So in the, in the world of new materials, two or three is, is a tough ask, uh, okay. but, <laughs> but, uh, but let's do it. So I okay. think my first thought is to pick a couple of materials or three, let's say materials that uh, are a little far-fetched in terms of thinking about commercial applications. Uh, of course, it depends on the, the audience. For some folks, they may have heard of these things. Uh, but for maybe your mainstream non-architecture engineering audience, these might be a little bit new. Uh, but despite their novelty, could, could really happen and are happening uh, in terms of you know, developing in it in a kind of way that can be commercialized and some, there are some applications of the, of these materials. So, uh, and also I'm, I'm thinking of a couple local things to North Carolina, just because 
for audiences outside of the state, it might be interesting to, to hear about some things that are happening in, in my neck of the woods, so to speak. And uh, one it is in the realm of uh, biomaterials. So mm -hmm. no surprise, there's a lot of emphasis right now on carbon sequestering materials, bio-based materials, wood, tall, tall timber structures, uh, because of the, the great carbon performance, uh, especially compared with things like concrete and steel. So there's a company, there's a startup called Planted, and it's there's no E, it's Plant D uh, materials based in Raleigh. And this is a startup that has formed to compete as part of the the X Prize in uh, kind of sustainability, you know, carbon sequestering efforts to compete uh, also in against uh, existing building products and, and specifically the timber industry. So what Planted does is they take perennial grasses and they have created structural, uh, uh, different types of structural boards, basically panelized materials uh, like you could use for subfloor or wall sheathing or roof decking, et cetera. And they've, they found a way to create uh, kind of very adaptable uh, and kind of fabrication facilities that take lower investment than a typical timber mill. And the, 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 the area of the kind of agricultural out, outlay, if you will, is nine times more efficient in terms of land use than timber. Uh, and so according to the company, the wood, the, the panelized products that they create, these structural uh, board products, which are like OSB basically, or plywood, mm -hmm. are they outperform wood, they, they sequester more carbon. They can supposedly do it at a lower cost than OSB uh, and require less land area, require less upfront investment as well in yeah. terms of the, so that's a super interesting development. I mean, imagine building houses out of grass, basically. It yeah. sounds like, I don't know if we should do that. Uh, but I think it's, it's a really, really interesting new uh, uh, development in the world of materials. On the mineral side, I'll just jump in and uh, mention Biomason. I think a lot of folks may have heard about Ginger Dozier's company, Biomason, uh, that is making uh, cementitious products similar to how coral reefs are made by, uh, by microorganisms. So she's growing cement rather than cooking it as, as Portland cement or the uh, Potsalonic materials that we're familiar with are made. And as yeah. a result, uh, is able to, to uh, have a much better performing material ecologically, right? Doesn't, doesn't have all this sort of carbon intensive production. She grows these things at room temperature. And uh, they, Biomason now has their first commercially, they have several commercial products, but one of them uh, is called BioLith. So these are blocks that are made with, I think it's 85% aggregate and the rest, 15% of this, you know, grown cement. Uh, so super interesting. And then a third, a third one I'll throw in there just because I know that these days questions about human health, especially after the pandemic or have, have 
come up a lot. People are asking me a lot more about uh, what types of materials or technologies and buildings yep. will really facilitate or ensure better human health standards in, indoors. And uh, it's less of a material, but a technology that, that I and I'm sure you and others have been interested in is this far ultraviolet lighting uh, that operates in a safer band of the spectrum, this far UVC band of 20, 222 nanometer wavelength light, uh, which is safer for humans and animals than the typical, it's like 254 uh, of ultraviolet lighting, which, you know, gives us a sunburn and, and worse effects, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But but is used to clean hospitals and, and you know, ensure that viruses are killed, pathogens are killed uh, indoors. So this this is also commercialized now, but expanding rapidly. I think this question that, that the research started to really take off during the pandemic and now there are commercial applications. And uh, some of these even have a little bit of a kind of violet tint to the light themselves. You know, so I started to wonder about, are we going to begin to evaluate the safety of a kind of interior domain based on, this violet tinge, uh, which, you know, of the lighting, are we actually going to kind of expect different coloration in our environments? I think uh, what we're finding is that not all these lights actually need to have that violet band uh, of color. Right. But so those are a few, I, I maybe spoke at length, but just a few off the top of my head. Oh, you spoke at length about something that's really interesting. So <laughs> you're, that, that is definitely allowed. I have to ask the, 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 uh, um, so the UVC, the 220 nanometer range, um, what what part of the building is it, is it being applied in? Is, it, does it does it work in conjunction with natural light with 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 sunlight? It it definitely can. So uh, the I think early applications of ultraviolet light, as I mentioned, not just the far UVC, but ultraviolet, have been in clean rooms and and you know, right. let's say hospital bedrooms and things where, where uh, a really high degree of public health was, was mandated and required, but, but occupation was dangerous. Uh, so uh, this, in this light we're seeing in more public spaces, uh, like foyers, auditorium type spaces, as well as classrooms. Okay. Uh, but I wanted to mention another product because it, I think it changes the way we think a little bit about this type of technology is an outdoor application. So uh, Studio Rusegard, uh, the, the firm that, that do a lot with lighting and, and sort of design uh, applications for interactive objects and light, has, has developed an outdoor street lamp, effectively. It's called the Urban Sun that they have installed and tested and similar to indoor light uh, with far UVC, it also kills up to 99.9% of coronaviruses uh, in its domain. Its domain in this case is a, is a circle. There's a certain radius yeah. that you can perceive, especially at night, right? Because it's the, the sort of the circle of light that you can stand inside. Uh, now, presumably, to answer your question, maybe it can be these can be on during the daytime as well. 
which would be interesting. Like, why are streetlights on at daytime? Oh, to reduce pathogens in the space. Uh, but this this is all this has also been intriguing to me because uh, and and I think more studies are being conducted to really determine because airflow is going to move pathogens around, you know, like you don't have as much control over an outdoor space. So there might be good questions about how effective is this. Uh, but especially if the, if the air is relatively still, I think, and uh, people feel yeah. safer near this light. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. I look forward to hearing more about that. Um, I'm going to change the subject very much at this point. Okay. Um, <laughs> very much. Uh, kind of a, a, it's a question about research itself. Uh, yeah, I, I stole one of your quotes from a few years ago. You said, uh, unfamiliarity invites innovation. Um, in the, in the tech world that I've worked in, they, they used to talk about collision spaces and that's where you'd get people with different expertise working on different things coming together, you know, and, and it would lead to some really, really interesting breakthroughs. Are the chemists, are the physicists, are they all speaking with uh, with the building scientists? Is that happening? And if and if not, how do we make it happen a little more? I think that's a great point, Joe. And I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think most people, well, I don't know if most, but a lot of a lot of uh, academics and practitioners, let's just say, appreciate that innovation often happens at the seams between disciplines or fields and interchanges between them. And that, that is the case. Uh, but it's too easy to get kind of stuck in a rut of how we do things and teaching our classes or practicing, you know, designing the buildings the way we've always designed them, uh, which, which also comes, it, it, it's kind of the reality for materials as well. Uh, gradually, we're, we are seeing positive changes. These are happening both kind of top down and bottom up. Uh, I think from in, in terms of top down, if, if, if you will, uh, the major granting agencies like NSF and NIH are, are beginning to adopt more sort of interdisciplinary language as part of their grant sort of major grants uh, to encourage interdisciplinary teams to submit. Uh, at the university level, we're seeing more activity. Uh, we have in our college, we have something called art sci grants. So these are uh, arts and sciences. And, and to submit, you have to have members of a college of arts and architecture and outside disciplines that include the sciences uh, could be, you know, medicine or, or engineering or other things as well. So those are just some examples of how, how uh, I think granting agencies and institutions and, and other organizations are trying to encourage this effort. Bottom up, I think uh, innovators, whether they be in the private sector, public sector, academia, uh, also uh, inundated with a lot of kind of interesting technologies that are happening in developments can recognize the benefits of technology transfer and, uh, and also see a path that might be more successful. And an example I will share is one of my faculty members has developed something she calls the biochromic window. And it is a kind of uh, lattice-like structure that is, the, the application is a building facade application. 
So it's it's porous. It had it let allows air through, but it's like a shading device. Uh, but the, but it's a volumetric shading device that's that's translucent that is intended to be filled with microalgae, and so it's it's a kind of and and there's a few of these examples of microalgae uh, applications that we're seeing now in the built environment, which is fascinating. Uh, so it's a variant of of what we've seen. Uh, but because she's dealing with a biological living agent, she's, of course, employed biologists, uh, because there are potential, there's carbon sequestration happening, uh, there are building performance issues, she works with engineers, because there are intended human health benefits uh, that this shading device creates, she's also working with public health experts. Uh, and so I think... This is just one example of one material, and we could we could pick many, right? Uh, that would invite coordination with with other disciplines that will help that system develop in a much more advanced and successful manner. Okay, well that's wonderful. I, that means it's it's, it's you're, you're starting to see that happening, and we'll and hopefully we'll see more of it. That's that's really exciting, and I have seen that technology. It looks really it looks really interesting. I'm going to change gears on you again. But this okay. this is almost like a cultural question. This one, um, and, and again, based on a, a, a something I heard you say um, in one of your lectures, um, you mentioned a Vanity Fair survey from some time ago that listed the thirty greatest buildings of the past thirty years, and then you contrasted that with a similar survey survey from Architecture Magazine that talked about the top thirty sustainable buildings, and there was no crossover. Um, why do you think that? you know, they're not the same, the sustainable buildings and, and the great buildings. Why, why is, uh, why weren't a lot of the same buildings on those two lists? Yeah, Joe, this is a great question. And uh, I, I, I will say that change has, change is happening, positive change. And so that, that is good uh, at the time. And, and I appreciate that you, that you mentioned those surveys uh, Lance Hosey was writing for Architect Magazine, and he's the one that brought that that comparison to my attention. Uh, and he's the one that that initiated the survey for Architect Magazine. To, you know, and I think it's fair to say, probably I shouldn't assume this, but it might be fair to say that he assumed going into the survey activity that there wouldn't be much alignment between the two lists, you know, the top, top design buildings in the world versus the top green buildings in the world. And he was right. I mean, there is, there is at the time, there is some, some crossover. Uh, I think the work of Renzo Piano and Norman Foster, for example, could, could kind of find its way on both lists, but very few buildings. And, uh, and at the time as well. And I think I, I forget when this happened, but it was, maybe more than 10 years ago, a little bit, 10, 15 years ago, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, but, and we can kind of remember that time as well, is the American Institute of Architects also gradually became aware that they themselves were, were sort of falling into the same bifurcation, uh, celebrating design awards separately from Committee on the Environment Awards in that competition. So, and there's there's a lot of discussion about why aren't these one and the same. So, 
I think there are a lot of things. You mentioned culture, Joe, and it's true that with a lot of the kind of heady experimentation that happened after the OPEC oil embargo and, and the kind of environmental crisis in the 70s, there, there was a, a perhaps very visible, a lot of visible publicity around, or memorable, I guess, publicity around certain types of buildings like earth ships and uh, you know, yeah. houses yeah. constructed out of tires and things that that may have had a kind of negative ripple effect among a lot of folks, including contemporary designers who, who may have thought, may have seen that in a negative light, right? You know, I, I think, again, I think it's all changed now, but maybe a decade or two ago, there was perhaps some reluctance among the, the kind of design vanguard, you might say, to delve into that territory of being sort of conspicuously environmentally focused, let's say. Yeah. Uh, but the, again, great news though today is that so many of the, of the really talented design firms, no matter what, what size really, and, and just about no matter what place on the earth they operate uh, are, are so conscious and aware of the need, you know, these environmental imperatives and the climate crisis that there's just a lot of activity happening today. And I think some great examples of design that incorporate uh, the best kind of environmental practices. Uh, but we still have work to do. I, think, I mean, there is change happening, but I think more hopefully will happen soon. Yeah, I'm sure I, I'll share a quick story. I, I recently had a conversation with a, a practicing architect from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Keith Robertson is his name. And, and uh, yeah. Keith has been a sustainable design architect since I think it was 91. So um, he, he described, uh, you know, starting his business with his partner um, 30 plus years ago and literally being called a tree hugger <laughs> when he was at meetings and, and, you know, the world has come to him, you know, it yes. took 30 years, but the world has come to him. So I, I, I suspect it would be a different, uh, it would be a different game today. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to skip ahead because you, you gave me a nice segue into a, another question. You, you yeah. made a comment once that design has been left out of sustainable design. Can you explain what that means? Absolutely. Uh, I, by the way, it's very flattering that you're finding these <laughs> things that I've said uh, in other sources. Uh, so, okay, maybe maybe I'll start with a little bit of personal history. Not that it's that personal or that interesting, uh, but but maybe mirrors what a lot what a lot of building professionals have experienced, where throughout our careers we're trying to understand. We're trying to learn the chops of our field, right? Learn best practices in our field. Uh, and at the same time, becoming increasingly aware of sustainability practices and, and, and different types of checklists or systems like, like LEAD, for example, or Living Building mm -hmm. Challenge. Uh, so that I, I just became aware of, like I think many of us, of the fact that so much of the sustainability work being done was really what I would call left brain focused, uh, right. meaning it's calculations, it's spreadsheets, you know, it's it's life cycle yeah. assessment kind of software, uh, it's check boxes, and I, I want to be very clear in saying that's all important. 
<laughs> yep. That's that's the way that we validate what we're doing and can point to you know that we know what we're doing, right? So I'm not at all disparaging the science behind sustainability. In fact, we, you know, we're in some ways we've just started scratching the surface of that science. Yeah, exactly. Having said that though, I think the art side or the right brain side has really been missing and uh but but that's perhaps even you might even say that's equally critical for the fact that that affects people in different in different ways uh it affect it captures people's imagination right it provides some sense of intrigue of delight of pride of place of excitement all the things that great design does right uh in addition to all the functional things that it has to do and so uh, and, and I also want to credit Lance Hosey, uh, he, the architect, he wrote a book called The Shape of Green, uh, and he makes this case himself. It's, it's less, it's more about design broadly. He, t- he talks about architecture, but it's more kind of really broad uh, questions about design. Is there a shape of green? And there isn't any single shape, but... He, he calls it visible, you know, visible green as opposed to invisible green. And I think I think that's really where where my point was to kind of reinforce his point that we need we need more visible kind of conspicuous right. experiments. And I'm not suggesting that there's a style or there's a singular kind of look or aesthetic, uh, but just I think more opportunities to to really uh, give students or practitioners or clients, you know, opportunities to imagine what, what should that look like? Should that take on kind of new look and feel or should it be evident in new ways? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to take a quick story um, from, from the work I've been doing recently. You know, I work in uh, architectural daylighting and uh, we always use radiance for, for checking, you know, glare potential and, and, um, one of the reasons we we use radiance is that it does the photorealistic renderings so you you can get a feel for the aesthetic which is you know daylighting does well done well when you walk into a space that's properly daylighted there's this marvelous feeling uh and and, uh so we try our best through the photorealistic renderings to try to convey that feeling um and it and it, it helps a whole lot it's not it's not the same as walking into the space but uh it it you know experienced architects can 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 extrapolate quite easily so yeah no absolutely i think it's yeah. it's a little bit like um the experience of a kind of increased use of environmental and biometric sensors to capture oh data the science side right the numbers side we're trying to quantify things and i get that and i appreciate and respect that Yes. But uh, I, I had here's just an example. I, I had a chance to visit the well building lab at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and they're doing that on this super advanced level, right? But you but you go into what is for practical purposes just a kind of it's meant to be a sort of generic space, like a generic office space that you can reconfigure different ways as you need for different experiments. Right. When I happened to see it, it was set up very generically. And that's by design. <laughs> that's very purposeful. 
But I had this almost visceral reaction where I realized, wait a minute, all the qualitative things that would affect me about how I behave in a space are kind of missing. And that's not a criticism of that lab that they're, they can add those qualitative things, right? They, you know, they can yeah. shape the space differently as they need, but when it's sort of like class B office building, whatever, you know, whatever the most kind of generic thing we can imagine is my reaction was, Oh my gosh, the places where I work, if, if we're trying to study human productivity, for example, the places where I work most productively are the places where it's like an old, older building and there's light shining a certain way and high ceilings or wood floors or whatever, like whatever I could imagine, or like this kind of cool modern reading room or whatever, whatever kind of, uh, whatever types of design excite us, right. And, and get us excited. And that's just a snapshot or example of how I feel like too much focus on the science or the, or uh, the quantification can get our eyes away from the, the qualification uh, that's so important. Well said. Well said for sure. All right. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a daylighting guy. I, I have to spend <laughs> yeah. a couple of minutes on daylighting views. Just, just, just a couple of seconds. Uh, PopTech, you spoke at PopTech in 2006, and, and you said something that's extremely relevant today. Actually, probably more relevant than it was in, in 2006. Um, so again, you were ahead of yourself. Um, you talked about the tension between energy codes and the desire to provide natural light in views. Is that tension still there? Is it better or worse? Or is there a way to make it better without it being like a, a, a zero sum game? That, thank you, Joe. Uh, I, again, I'm very impressed. That's one great thing about the internet, right? It is. <laughs> Things that I said in 2006 are still circulating. Uh, but, but no, thank you. I, I think it's, I mean, that was a lesson that I learned in practice. That's one of the, one of the benefits of having practiced for a while before I taught my first class. Right. I mean, as you know, from your, from your career, it, it, it matters to know it's, I think it's helpful to know how things are actually working, uh, and, and to be relevant, but, uh, that, you know, that remark came from a practice experience on some projects where those are the calculations we we're running. And it seemed to be this conflict, right. This kind of obvious, battle. And actually, yeah. when when I teach students about materials and, and talk about the envelope, I as kind of as a way to get them excited and interested. I start by saying, you know, I, I start the lecture or discussion by by saying, you know, building facades, they all seem resolved. I mean, as built, you know, they all seem sort of like, oh, all the decisions were made well, it was a seamless process. But the reality is they're a battleground for all these different forces and yeah. that are at tension with each other and conflicts, yeah. you know, yeah. and that definitely gets the student's attention. And to some degree, it is true. It's not to say that we're literally warring <laughs> with each other. Yeah. Uh, everyone yeah. wants to see the facade built, right? Uh, so it's not quite true. But this point about the energy code and, you know, the amount of, uh, window area really is is true as as a sort of battle or conflict to kind of minimize that. So you'll have different parties wanting different things, right? You'll want uh, the user and and oftentimes even the building owner wanting to maximize that glazed envelope area. 
for light and view purposes. And then, and then you'll have code officials saying, no, 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 that's too much energy, but okay. You know, all this stuff. I do. The, and, Not and everybody think, does though, so go ahead. <laughs> well, mo- may, maybe many can intuit it, uh, no. but and but I just I like to point I like to you know point the discussion towards what is really the problem or or the kind of matter at hand, and it has to do with the certain capacities of a status quo material technology, right? And it's an amazing material technology, advanced glazing. Or even what's now typical, you know, curtain wall or even storefront glazing today, you know, hundreds of years ago would have been a miracle, right? So we can respect and appreciate it, but still it doesn't have the same insulating capacity as, let's say, uh, in, in most buildings, the solid wall around it, right? Or sort of, you know, that comprises the rest of the building envelope, uh, whatever used, you know, residential, commercial, et cetera. Uh, so, by, but by pointing to, you know, let's look at the material. I think it's less of a cultural thing. I think it's more in reality. I think it's more of a material capacity thing is that with, with some new types of insulated glazing systems, you mentioned aerogel, certainly mm-hmm. aer- like you know, nanogel and other types of systems. We can at least have daylight suffuse, you know, uh, t- sort of translucent. And not at the expense of losing, uh, losing that battle. We can have more daylight uh, and things like dynamic glass, like sage glass. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're, so I think there are a lot of exciting developments that suggest that in the future, we won't be having the same battle right? <laughs> that we can have. We, I mean, not all clients maybe want to have that much window, uh, and that's fine. But uh, this this idea of kind of punched openings, they're a sieve for energy. You know, energy flows out uh, in a bad way. I think that paradigm we're going to overcome with new glazed technologies. Uh, look, I, I when I started with advanced glazings in 2005, our bread and butter was an R5 light diffuser. And today, the majority is R18, R25. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it is amazing. And most of that has come on in the last 18 to 24 months. The, you, if, you, if you plot it, the, the conversion to R18, R25, the demand for R18, R25, uh, it, it, just, it, it just came out of nowhere. We went from 15 years of selling R5 to... All of a sudden, it's all R18, R25. R9 isn't even enough uh, <laughs> anymore. So, yeah, things are changing for sure, <laughs> for sure. Um, let's ruffle some feathers. Let's ruffle some feathers. Let's do it. Okay. Um, what popular construction materials need to re- be replaced and soon? And, <laughs> and, and uh, are, you know, as, as a second part of that, are there potential replacements on the horizon for those? Okay. Uh, Just pick a couple, like the ones that really come to mind for you. Well, the, the obvious ones, and I think the listeners will probably have the same ones in mind. Uh, concrete and steel are at the top of the list. Now, yeah. why? Because uh, they're great materials, but why would they be at the top of the list? Would just have to do with their carbon performance as currently manufactured and built. 
Right. So it does, it does, what I'm not saying is that we need to do away with these materials. I'm just saying that, um, I mean, and, and I'm not alone. So much of the scientific community, the building community is looking at these materials uh, yeah. very seriously. There's so much research going on right now, so much experimentation to make these materials perform better environmentally, that that alone is, is a huge inspiration. But why? Well, it's because we build most, you know, or, or they're the most commonly used building materials. Uh, I was shocked to find out when I did, and I can't remember when this was, maybe 10 years ago or something. When I first heard that concrete is the most consumed material on earth after water by humans, I think we had to put that, you know, like, yeah. wow. I couldn't believe that, right? So, so just the sheer volume of it. If you if you compare a concrete just by weight or volume to other materials, like even a lot of plastics or other things that might might seem more innocent, uh, concrete often does better carbon performance wise. It's just the sheer quantity of it, right? So, uh, and for there's a range, you know five to eight percent maybe pushing eight percent of the of the world's or human carbon footprint is uh attributed to concrete and wow. especially uh cement and and yeah. I, I think you know this has occurred a fair amount in the news so people may be familiar with that but so there's a lot of focus on you know supplementary cementitious materials how can we reduce the embodied energy in the cement itself uh, a, a good thing is that concrete is so pervasive and uh, it's, it's this recipe that has a million variants, but also is sort of common in a beautiful way that innovation can happen broadly, right? It can happen, it can happen in, in different geographic locations based on kind of local materials to make it better, et cetera. So, I think I think a lot is happening with concrete, but we we simply have to reduce that carbon footprint. Uh, there's some other things with concrete. I will say, the use of um, of mild steel that's that is not weather resistant for reinforcing is becoming a problem right. now. That uh, it's called concrete cancer. That a lot of the Okay. Which sounds awful, and it is awful. A lot of mm -hmm. decaying structures um, we we have to deal with now, right? Because the steel wasn't wasn't properly weather treated for reinforcing, or or alternatives to steel weren't used. Okay, that's concrete uh, steel, and you know, no surprise, requires a lot of energy to produce, and is yeah. uh, the second most consumed building material. Uh, and another thing that, that a lot of people, well, a lot of non-architects and non-engineers maybe and non-contractors will presume when they hear stories about wood buildings or versus concrete or steel buildings is that there's more of a kind of monomaterial reality when there's not. I mean, almost every building has concrete, steel, and even wood uh, in it. Right. So so when we talk about buildings that are steel buildings versus concrete buildings, of course, we're talking about primary structure mainly. Uh, but even these tall timber buildings almost always have a concrete and steel foundation. Right. So, so these are materials that are important 
to, to fix, to improve in terms of their body to energy, because it's not like it's so easy for us to say, well, we'll just build in wood because you're almost always going to still have concrete and steel in that wood building in, in a significant way. So, uh, and steel also with electric arc furnace technology and other types of, uh, there's a kind of, they're interesting flash based processes that can achieve a really high quality result, a uh, high quality product at a much reduced environmental footprint than uh, kind of, you know, blast furnace or, or, or older furnace technology. So I think uh, I've mentioned two of the kind of, neg you know, where the negative focus is going, but at the same time could have just really, I can spin it around and say that's where a lot of the positive focus is going. Because they're just like what you said about windows, there's there's a tremendous amount of improvement happening in that world. Yeah, well, that's that's very uh, that's encouraging and uh, you know a little <laughs> a little concerning simultaneously. Now I'm going to focus on the encouraging <laughs> yeah. part of it. Um, I, yeah. I, again, I want to I want to change gears a little bit and go into something just completely wild. I I, uh, I live on Cape Breton Island off the east coast of Nova Scotia. I have a home. On, on the river at the side of a mountain and um, every day it's a little different. And when I walk through the woods, sometimes if I can get out into the woods, it's a little bit different. Um, and I, it entered into my head, you know, are we going to get to a day? There's just so many, you know, biophilic materials. Are we going to get to a day where we walk into a building and it's a little bit different than it was yesterday or the, than it was a month ago um, because of these sorts of organic materials. I, I know that's kind of a, a crazy thought, but it, 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 give me your give me your feelings on, on that uh, that sort of idea. Yeah, absolutely, Joe. I think uh, as as someone that whose career has been heavily connected to daylighting, you already know this and appreciate the fact that with with daylight, we already, well, we can design architecture uh, to really try to capture that continual change. And you know that, right? The circadian mm -hmm. rhythms and really mm -hmm. to, we, we can design architecture to, to, to maybe emphasize a little bit more the different coloration in the sky that reflected against the wall and things. So, uh, so that we, so that buildings are more, uh, yeah, that this that intended to kind of celebrate those changes just purely from a kind of light spectrum standpoint. I think uh, to your point about architecture continually changing in a way that we notice, it's a it's a fascinating point because it suggests seasonality, right? We we think about natural world examples, uh, or or certainly weather, um, or ecosystems like how they grow and evolve over time and i've i've been fascinated by in, in the world of uh, of electric illumination or or let's say even sort of self-illumination technologies uh, if it's you know bio-based or or otherwise that uh the the kind of technologies that allow for user-centered programming or programmability of spaces 
mm-hmm. uh, and with not just with light fixtures, you know, you can you could sort of when I come home, I'd like the lights to change to a certain level, maybe certain colors, right? A lot of increasingly folks have these things at home uh, tied to an app, let's say, but also new lighting materials like uh, illuminated wallpaper or uh, ceiling type systems that are more sort of where, where light is more pervasively part of an environment that we can tune color and light. Um, there are now uh, electronic ink based tiles that can be used to cover surfaces. And uh, and right now they're just one color, but they can convey information in a certain way. And you can imagine you look entering a room with a tile surface, but all of a sudden it becomes something that displays different pixels, different times of the day, different information. So. I think, you know, some of some of this is trendy, and and some of the can be kind of a fad of, of uh, you know, saying or or maybe people get too fussy with all, setting all of their lights to do certain things, and and that could kind of go against your provocation of of maybe being more predictable, right? If it's user centered and programmable, maybe it's more predictable and not and less unpredictable and surprising. But I think the same technologies could be be used to harness those maybe natural patterns and changing weather or whatever seasonality as well to so that we we would see more changes uh, in our built environment. Very cool. Very cool. I was a bit of a, a bit of a flyer there, but uh, I appreciate you indulging <laughs> me. That was really cool. Okay, um, before we wrap up, Lane, um, is there anything that you'd like to talk about? Anything you'd like to promote? Anything that sh- that should be shared that I didn't cover today? Well, uh, Joe, thank you for asking. Uh, so the 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 first thing that 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 enters my mind is what we have learned since this crazy thing that we all just experienced uh, called the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that there's fatigue, right? I think we're all tired of even talking about or reading about the pandemic. And I understand that I'm fatigued myself, but I'm not trying to focus on the negatives of it. There, there's a lot we probably should still study, of course, but really more on the positive. So one of the things, for example, that the pandemic has uh, opened our eyes to is the need for more fresh air and better air quality absolutely. in our interiors, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, that's tied to HVAC systems, but it's also tied to the operability and adaptability of building envelopes and thinking of building envelopes less as just, you know, kind of hermetic seal uh, boundaries and more things that we can control and manipulate as we like and when the weather's nice, et cetera. So, and that's nothing new, right? A lot of sort of traditional Japanese architecture, for example, is is based on that basic concept of kind of manipulability of the facade. So having said that, I think that's there's a lot of good attention to that kind of thing. And uh, my my most recent project it was a book called The Pandemic Effect, 
where I invited uh, a lot of different experts in things like building facades, but also many other areas of you know public health and landscape architecture, urban design, other areas, just to just to basically give us their snapshot of what do they think, you know, what, how are they processing what we've been through and what do they think design can learn from it? Um, so you ask about, you know, what I, what I might point to, and that's, that's been a fun project. And I think, you know, I would, I would just caution us all if we, when we start to feel fatigued based on the pan- I don't want to talk about COVID anymore. I get it. But at the same time, there's some, there's some incredible inspiring ideas that people have about how design might evolve and how it should evolve that uh, can get us excited. Absolutely. Tell us the name of the book one more time. It's called the pandemic effect. Perfect. Perfect. Blaine, I I cannot thank you enough. I could talk to you for hours, um, but I've been told I try to keep it as close to 30 minutes as I can. Um, But look, I thank you so, so much for this opportunity. Um, I am really looking forward to getting this out to the public. There's so many things here that the world needs to hear. Thank you very much. Um, Hope we get to meet in person sometime soon. I would love to. Uh, thank you so much, Joe. It's been an honor uh, for you to have me here and, and best of luck uh, with your podcast.